You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, welcome. Um, This is like a packed house compared to what I was expecting today with it being um, Labor Day and also our newest canon pastor um, telling his story. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you being in here. So this is a seven-week series, um, and we're going to look at how God chose six women who were unloved, unlucky, and or unlikely to ultimately bring about the birth of the Savior of the world. So here is our schedule and my awesome team. Um, So I've got a a different fantastic teacher each week um, to teach about these women. Um, And today I'm just gonna give an introduction to sort of lay the groundwork, largely because I'm a big nerd and um, I really get into things like biblical genealogies, Um, but also because there is a lot to consider on this topic, um, so much more than I can get into in just one class. But I'm going to try to hit the high points today, and um, I know that the rest of my team will do a great job filling in the blanks in the next several weeks. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to worship you and praise you. for your just uh, unsearchable greatness, Lord. Um, And Lord, I just pray that now, that there would be less of me and more of you, um, and that your word would go forth, that you would be glorified. I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so why this class? Well, truthfully, several women um, have asked that we have a class about women in the Bible, and I'll admit I was hesitant at first um, mainly because I didn't want it to be a class that was focused on like girl power. I mean, not that I'm anti-girl, I mean, I am a girl, um, but because there's so much more to the inclusion of women in the Bible than simply an affirmation of their worth. We decided to teach this class for the opportunity to dig into that so much more. Specifically for this series, we chose to teach about some of the women named and unnamed in Jesus's lineage. But why teach about the women in Jesus's lineage? Why teach about these particular women? Well, looking at the lives of these particular women shows us something of the character of God. It shows us something of how God views women, particularly in contrast to the common views of that time and culture. And by extension, how he views all of humanity. He shows us, it shows us his redemptive nature his grace, even in the fall, and it shows us his determination to use the least, the lowliest, and last, the unloved, unlucky, and unlikely for his purposes. We should learn about these women because by adoption, these women are part of our lineage. It's undeniable that these women figure heavily in our redemption history, so it only makes sense that we investigate why. Elise Fitzpatrick writes, I love this little gizmo. Y'all Gil just loaned this to me today. Um, Why should we notice and celebrate women in the storyline of scripture? Where do you look when you're expecting someone important? You look toward the place from which you know they will first appear. If you're a child waiting for someone to come home, you look at the front door. If you're at an airport, you look at the returning passenger corridor. 
When God first proclaimed the gospel, he promised deliverance through the offspring of the woman. The deliverer will come through her. This promise teaches us to watch the woman as the storyline unfolds so that we see the Redeemer when he arrives. Looking for, noticing, and celebrating women in the storyline of the Bible is climbing the ladder of careful Bible interpretation, seeing the rungs that the author put in place, and stepping accordingly. So we name this class Unloved, Unlucky, and Unlikely because one or more of those adjectives describe the status of these women prior to God's intervention in their lives. And frankly, we named it this because we needed a spicy title. I mean, if we'd named it a study of Jesus's genealogy, I mean, let's be honest, you would all have been like hard pass. Why do I say that? Well, you tell me, what do you do when you come across a genealogy in scripture? you skip it. <laughs> At best, you quickly skim it, saying hard word when you get to a name that defies phonetics. But more often than not, if we're honest, you skip it. But we shouldn't. Second Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, even the genealogies. <laughs> So, the Bible gives two genealogies of Jesus, one in Luke, which is traced through Mary, Jesus' biological mother, and one in Matthew, traced through Joseph, Jesus' legal but not biological dad. Now, for the purposes of this introduction, we are going to look at Matthew. So, Matthew 1.1 opens with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, stop right there. See, I can already tell I'm losing some of you. Your eyes are glazing over. Your head is starting to roll back. So a few years ago, a friend of mine, this is the young friend you might have heard Mark Genelette refer to on occasion. This friend preached on Matthew 1, and his sermon began in amazement that Matthew would begin the world-changing story of the Savior of the world this way. My friend made the point that great stories are supposed to have great beginnings. I mean, we all learn this in school, right? Your story, your paper, has to start with a hook at the beginning to spark the reader's interest right away. Let's look at a few examples. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Another one, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Another one, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now those are great beginnings, right? They grab your interest and they make you want to keep reading to find out what comes next. But Matthew begins the world-changing story of the Savior of the world this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on with a long list of names, many of which you've never heard and would be hard-pressed to locate in the rest of Scripture. All right, so buckle up, because I'm reading the whole thing. <laughs> 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. There's really a reason I'm reading the whole thing, I promise. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. We're almost there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliak, Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Did I lose anyone? <laughs> Check the person next to you, see if you need to shake them. Okay, so why would Matthew begin his gospel this way? Well, for one thing, genealogies were culturally very important in the ancient Near East. Southerners understand this. We're all about genealogies. They tell you who your people are. But in the ancient Near East, genealogies served a vital function confirming legal status. They proved your right to land and possessions, and they proved your standing as one of God's chosen people, as part of the family of God. So that's one reason. But Matthew uses the cultural significance of genealogies to accomplish something else in his opening. So if you think about it, what was the overall argument of Matthew's gospel? What was he trying to prove? That Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the one who was to come. Jesus is king. So Matthew sets about proving this through Jesus' lineage. By opening the gospel with this lengthy genealogy, Matthew is proving right off the bat that Jesus is of the nation and family from which Messiah was to come. Through this genealogy, Matthew is making the historical and legal case for Jesus' legitimate claim as descendant of Abraham and David. Now, why did this matter? Well, because according to all the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah had to be the son of Abraham and David. Sorry, I just lost my place. Um, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies about Messiah's line. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of blessing to Abraham and his seed. In Genesis 12, 
God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God blessed Abraham and that blessing included the promise that he would become a great nation, have many descendants, and that through Abraham, all nations on earth, Jew and Gentile, would be blessed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of dominion to David and his seed. In 2 Samuel, God promised David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's blessings of Abraham and David find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, giving him the legal right to Israel's throne. Jesus is the true king of Israel and all the world. Okay. So far, all of this makes sense. But there is a lot about Matthew's version of Jesus's genealogy that doesn't make sense to us. When we look closely at this genealogy, we see that Matthew has organized it into three parts, three groups, accounting for 14 generations each. Now this organization is intentional. Each section describes a period in Israel's history the first one, it's from Abram, Abraham to David. So this is a glorious time for the nation of Israel. Um, certainly not without issues, but generally a time of great promise, growth, and blessing for the nation of Israel. And then the next section tells about the time from David to the Babylonian exile. So this is when things begin to slide seriously south. There's a repetitive cycle of sin and rebellion which finally leads to Israel's capture and deportation to a foreign pagan nation. And then the last section is from exile to the coming of Christ. So Israel, which was once a great nation, is scattered, living among pagans. Israel is in desperate need of rescue. So through this genealogy, Matthew is telling the history of Israel a story that begins in great promise, but ends in diaspora and humiliation. Now, why would Matthew preface his telling of the birth of the Messiah with a focus on Israel's failure? Well, by focusing on Israel's failure, Matthew emphasizes God's power in human weakness. Israel had been given everything it needed to succeed as a nation, to be a fruitful vine, but they couldn't do it. Matthew's focus on Israel's failure shows Israel's need for a savior. By organizing his genealogy this way, Matthew made it clear to his readers that Israel is at its lowest when Jesus comes down to save the human race. Okay, so what else in this genealogy doesn't make sense? Well, it doesn't lead biologically to Jesus. I mean, if you sent off your Ancestry.com slob and the results did not lead biologically to you, you would be pretty disappointed. You'd probably want your money back. Verse 16 names Joseph only as husband of Mary. 
Matthew makes a point of tracing Jesus' genealogy to Joseph and then immediately telling us that Joseph is not the father. Am I the only one who feels like Maury Povich when I say that? Do y'all remember that? That's all I can think. Anyway, um, so why? Why is Matthew so quick to make this point? Well, because Joseph cannot be the biological father of the Messiah. Jesus is the only son of God the Father. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. But what makes the least sense of all is Matthew's inclusion of women. And Matthew doesn't just include women. Women are prominently featured in Matthew's detailing of the coming of the promised Messiah. Now, what makes this so weird? Well, because in first century Israel, nobody cared about women. Women had absolutely no status. Apart from a husband, a woman had no real rights, power, or possessions. Israel regarded the ancestral line as passing through fathers, not mothers. So genealogies in the Hebrew Bible are dominated by names of men. As I've already said, genealogies are really important, specifically for legal status and improving who your people were. So of course, it would be weird to have people considered among the lowliest with no legal status or peoplehood of their own figure so prominently in any genealogy, let alone the genealogy of the Messiah. But Matthew's inclusion of these women tells us something important about our Messiah. Matthew's inclusion of these women tells us that Messiah is fully representative of the human race. In the creation story, we read that both men and women were made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So scripture tells us then that women also were made to be royal rulers in the image of God, to be children of God in the likeness of God and to be helpers in priestly service to God. And that was quite a contrast to the cultural view of women at that time. Matthew's listing of these women also tells us that Jesus would not be royalty by human standards. Jesus identifies with the least and lowest in his genealogy just as in his birth, baptism, life, and death. And the prominent placement of these women in Jesus' genealogy keeps us from glossing over the fact that Jesus was, in fact, born of a woman. He didn't spring forth from something or appear out of thin air like one of the Greek or Roman gods. Jesus was an embodied person, born in the same painful, difficult, and messy way that we were. Jesus was born of a woman. In Genesis 3, following the fall, God tells Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Can you even imagine what a gift that was to Eve? To hear that while she certainly had a lot to do with the fall of humanity, God in his mercy and grace promises her that she will somehow also be involved in humanity's rescue. 
Elise Fitzpatrick writes, Eve had spent her life awaiting the conquering son who would reverse the curse, but she died without ever receiving him. And I've never thought about this before, but you can just imagine being a woman of this time, growing up knowing this promise, mother after mother passing along to her daughter this promise, this hope, you might be the one. You might be the mother to give birth to the one who will turn this mess around. So we've established Jesus's genealogy as recorded by Matthew is weird. It's weird because it focuses on Israel's failure. It's weird because it doesn't lead biologically to Jesus. And it's weird because it features the names of several women. But we also establish that just like everything else that has to do with our Lord and Savior, the weirdness of his genealogy makes perfect sense when we see it through a kingdom lens rather than a worldly lens. But even if we can get behind Matthew's reasons for including women so prominently in Jesus's genealogy, once we take a look at those he names, we have to ask, why on earth did he choose this bunch? I mean, of course, Matthew includes Mary, Jesus's biological mother. I mean, I guess that's only to be expected, and at least the shadiness surrounding her story is God-imposed. But the great-grandmothers Matthew chooses to include are real head-scratchers. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who, by the way, is not even named, only referenced as wife of Uriah. So why these four? And why not other great-grands who were highlighted in the Jewish writings, like Sarah, Leah, and Rebecca? Not that they didn't have their own issues. Well, my fabulous teaching team will dive into the particulars of this in subsequent lessons, but I would like to mention just a few generalities here. One is that the inclusion of these women is not superfluous. Their inclusion was not simply to affirm women or give women some credit in a patrilineal genealogy. As I've already suggested, if this were the case, surely Matthew would have chosen more familiar, acceptable women. Or Matthew might have included all men and women as a sort of nod to equal representation. Matthew also did not include these women just to show that God forgives sexual sin. It's true that each of these women has at least some sort of suspicion of sexual sin clouding her character. But if this were Matthew's point, he didn't need to be so edgy as to name women in the genealogy of the Messiah. There are plenty of qualified men in biblical history to use as examples of sexual sin. Matthew names these women for reasons that point us to some important understandings of who Jesus is. So one is that the first four named are all Gentiles. The first four women named in Jesus's genealogy demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. And they serve as a reminder that Gentiles were never an afterthought in God's plan. Past pedigrees of royalty in Israel emphasized a king's Jewishness only through male ancestors. Jesus's pedigree not only included, but required women in order to establish Jesus as the king who sits on David's throne, who is the ruler of all nations, King of King and Lord of Lords. 
The Apostle Paul wrote that because of Jesus' coming, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The women named in Jesus' genealogy point to the moment this promise of Messiah became a glorious historical reality offered to all people, that people of all nations are welcome in Messiah's kingdom. Matthew uses the otherness of these women to argue that this king is different, this king is better. And all of them, the five named as well as Leah, took risks and walked in faith. The four Gentiles were outsiders, which was bad enough, but as women, none of them had any personal power or agency. Without taking a risk and walking in faith, each would have remained an outsider or a woman with an uncertain future. More importantly, she would not have been part of Jesus's royal lineage, part of God's long-awaited promise to redeem his people. Instead, God involved each of them in the action of the Spirit in the history of salvation. And all of them had, shall we say, marital irregularities. All have unusual stories about how they became mothers or how they became mothers in the community of Israel. The story or circumstance of each of these women has the potential to scandalize, to label each as immoral or disgraced. But this is not how the Bible describes them. In scripture, each of these women is described as someone declared righteous by God. So in a recent class, John O. Linebaugh said something like this, our biography, our story of who we are, when it is about ourselves, when we focus it on us, would cause us to say that we are unworthy. But if instead of looking at ourselves when describing who we are, we look at whose we are, we see that by the grace of God, we are worthy in Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Similarly, the biography of each of these women might have been scandalous or immoral or disgraceful in some way. Still, each of these women was declared righteous by God not because of her own merit, but only by the grace of God. R.T. France writes, in each case, there were at least suspicions of some form of marital irregularity, though all four, in fact, were vindicated by God's subsequent blessing. They form an impressive precedent for Jesus's birth of an unmarried mother from an obscure background. So when I was preparing for this, um, I found this painting, which by the way, if you see Kevin Houseman, you can put a little bug in his ear. I'd really like that for my office. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, her name is Trisha Robinson and it's called The Four. And the artist writes, these four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba have something in common. They are grandmothers in Jesus's family tree grandmothers. Some had affairs, some were prostitutes, lied, and were truly not the starry-eyed perfect princesses. But God chose them, used them, these four broken women, and that's why I gave them crowns, a symbol of grace and love from our Creator and Redeemer. 
Each of these women is a complicated person with a messy life, just like us. Women in Jesus's lineage are real women with complex stories that can't be reduced to stereotypes. This messiness grounds the Christmas story in an authentic earthiness as opposed to an idyllic tableau. The presence of these women in Jesus's lineage counteracts our tendency to idealize the Lord's male ancestors as shiny, perfect heroes, and instead draws our focus back to the Messiah where it belongs. And in each woman's life, God makes a way where there is no way. Each of these women finds herself in an impossible situation that is only made possible by the Lord's initiative and intervention. So what does this all mean for us? Where is the good news in all of this for us? We are these women. Our lives may not be as dramatic or reality TV worthy is the lives of these women, but we share a lot in common with them. Like these women, we were all once outsiders. But as St. Paul writes in Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Like these women, the Lord has or will call on each of us to take risks and walk in faith to advance his kingdom, to do all such good works as he has prepared for us to walk in through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And whether or not any of us could be described as having some sort of marital irregularity, scripture assures us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us have a biography that on its own makes us unworthy. But by the saving grace of our Lord, we, like these women, are called worthy in Jesus Christ. The good news for us is that the presence of these women in Jesus's lineage shows precisely the kind of people he came to save. They are a reminder that Jesus came to save all sorts and conditions. They are a reminder that our Lord uses not the most popular, the most highly esteemed, or the most impressive. Instead, our Lord stoops down to raise up the unloved, the unlucky, and the unlikely for his plans and his purposes. Most importantly, these women are a reminder that in our Lord Jesus Christ, the unloved are beloved, the unlucky are blessed, and the unlikely are chosen while we were yet sinners. Anne Voskamp explains it beautifully. The family tree of Christ startlingly notes not one woman, but four. Four broken women. Women who felt like outsiders, like has-beens, like never-beens. Women who were weary of being taken advantage of, of being unnoticed and uncherished and unappreciated. Women who didn't fit in, who didn't know how to keep going, what to believe, where to go, women who had thought about giving up. And Jesus claims exactly these who are wandering and wondering and wounded and worn out as his. And he grafts you into his line and his story and his heart. And he gives you his name, his lineage, his righteousness. 
The women Matthew names, or references, in Jesus' genealogy remind us that in the face of certain judgment, peace with God is available through faith, and that the joy that redemption brings insists upon the grace of the coming Messiah to redeem and restore. These women's stories are scandalous, but so is the cross. And it is by the power of that cross that each of these women and each of us is declared righteous in Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll join us next week. Carolyn Lankford will teach on Leah, one of Jesus's great grands who is not named in Jesus's genealogy, but who we chose to include in this series because she is a great illustration of the unloved, unlucky, and unlikely who nevertheless makes her way into the story of our redemption, specifically the story of our Savior's birth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this time with you, Lord. Um, Lord, thank you that uh, through the power of your cross, you make us worthy in your sight. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, Gil, you missed it. We voted to go ahead and start because we thought most people were in here and we're like, I can go ahead and start and y'all can get out of here. <laughs> it's a holiday weekend. So, yeah, if y'all have questions or want to talk about anything, we can, but otherwise, you can go in well, peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.